0: Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants, and they're both boys and girls because I've seen women and men. Hello, this is episode 26 of the boys in short pants, the 27th episode, and it probably will be the last of the summer editions, uh, considering that we are coming up on the end of summer and that the house will be restarting soon, as will news.
1: Yeah, I believe the house uh, comes back, Well, oh, don't quote me on the date, I think it's the 18th, September 18th. I should, I should probably know this. It's either the 17th or the 18th. I'm betting it's the 18th. And then the Senate comes back one day later. Of course they do. They got to enjoy that break. Of course they do. They get yeah. one extra day. They, yeah. they worked a little later, though, so yeah. fair is fair.
0: So we did this because Etienne wanted to, to get a rant out.
1: I mean, not a rant so much as one of the, I think, more pressing issues uh, in terms of news coverage. I'd, I'd say there are two big news ones or two big pieces of news over the summer. Uh, the first one is uh, Minister Morneau's proposed changes to the tax. Uh, small business tax, sort of, I'll use the word scheme, but it's perhaps not, not most appropriate. Effectively, I think scheme is fair. Tax scheme. Uh, he's proposed three changes, uh, all of which impact small business owners and business owners, and the government selling them as closing loopholes and yeah. tax fairness, whereas you're having a lot of pushback from... Doctors, lawyers, small businessmen, agriculture—saying like, yes. "We loopholes or not, these are measures we rely on to keep our businesses afloat." So, yeah. so that's going to be sort of an interesting, developing political issue. And there's actually been a surprising amount of coverage on this, and yes. back well, and forth, and punditry su- weighing
0: in. To some degree, I'm not surprised by that, uh, because the people affected are, like white-collar professionals uh, who are upper-middle class. Well, not exclusively. For the most part. I think if you look at this, especially the doctors have been the people most covered. Uh, in, like, the CMA came out very strong against this, the Canadian Medical Association. Um, and that's been where a lot of the coverage has been, especially on doctors.
1: So it has so far, but I, I think it's um, perhaps misleading to say the people, the most people impacted. I think there'll be a lot of people in the farming community. I don't think yeah. a lot of the voices in the farming community have begun to spoke. So have begun to speak we're right now in a 75 day proposal yeah. window and yeah. then it'll come that through said a little to be later. Honest,
0: farmers are also upper middle class white collar professionals for the most part like let's be real i mean their collars get dusty but like at the end of the day they are like driving an air-conditioned tractor around like three days a year like, no i'm kidding uh but they farmers are not like this is a a sort of thing in canadian politics that irritates me a lot is a sort of romantic image of farming that we still have and like oh little family farms. it's just like nah, that's not really the case anymore
1: i don't know none of my uncles all i have a fam a side full of dairy farmer uncles and they they certainly do not fit the mold of the the large corporate dairy farm no they are
0: i mean statistically they are the
1: exception they're all independent farmers on the land that they're grandfather's farm so i guess yeah, i guess they very they're, much they're, fit that mold that you're you're trying to break they're a statistical anomaly but wait we're getting distracted we are. um i i would like to cover this perhaps in a future episode with some some experts on the tax code um but that's not what we're here for today. no no we're here to talk about the other big issue of the summer uh, which is refugees, or uh, perhaps better phrase or better termed asylum seekers. Yes,
0: that is the technically correct one. Just um, as everyone knows, the best kind of correct.
1: So let let's start with distinguishing um, between those two terms. Refugees typically are used to refer to people coming from uh, sort of designated refugee channels. That is to say, when we when we refer to them as Syrian refugees, mm-hmm. that Canada accepted Syrian refugees. These are people who registered as refugees through the UN and other bodies and came to Canada through international channels. That's different than someone who shows up at the border or at not the border, as the case may be, and declares asylum, says, I am here because it is a risk for my life. I want you to review my asylum case and determine whether or not I'm admissible.
0: Yeah. Declares intent to seek asylum, I guess. Sure. While we're being technical, let's be technical. Sure. Yeah.
1: Um, and so that has been one of the burning issues of the summer, has been that there have been large numbers of asylum seekers, um, in, largely in Quebec, but also slightly uh, less so in Manitoba. And this has created a backlog in the system, yeah. uh, like a massive backlog in terms of how resources are being deployed within CIC or IRCC, yeah. uh, the Immigration Department and how other claims are being considered and sort of the overall resourcing capabilities of not only the refugee, or sorry, not the refugee, of the Citizenship Department, but also of RCMP and CBSA within the area. Yeah, public safety,
0: like Ralph Goodell's had a busy summer.
1: Uh, The Canadian military has been deployed to set up uh, sort of camps uh, with housing for 900 plus people in Quebec. And as have uh, municipal resources, I can only imagine, are being taxed there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I hesitate to say that it's unprecedented, because when you look at the numbers of refugee claims historically, there have been other highs. Um, about 10 years ago, there was a high in refugee claimants, sort of, or sorry, asylum seekers, in uh, sort of similar circumstances. But one of the things you notice if you look at the historical trend of asylum claims is that it fluctuates a lot that there's not really a clear pattern and i think one of the problems this causes in terms of resourcing that when you have differences of thousands five thousand or so a year it's hard to staff a department appropriately to respond to these yeah because if you're overstaffed all the time then that's just like inefficient a waste of resources and if you're understaffed and then you have a surge in a given year and then that backlogs the entire system yeah it's not easy to just like havoc
0: yeah it's not easy to just like put more resources and hire more people like quickly to like respond to a crisis because a government hiring is slow for some reasons that are good and some that are unfortunate um and it's just it just takes time like you'd need people to get familiar with all like even if you could hire people overnight which you, you can't uh, it would still take time for them to get up to speed on procedures and everything. So it's just not something you can
1: respond to at the sort of in real time. Very much so. And so the, the government, we'll get to the government response a little later because it has included things like um, hiring more people to more caseworkers to sort of get slogged through the backlog. Um, but I've seen estimates as high as some of the, some of the numbers being uh, up into 11 years i think is some of the high-end numbers that's very high (coughs) excuse me so obviously 11 years to process anything is completely unreasonable yeah so let's talk about um i want to talk about the technical side of this story and a lot of what's not covered in the news so we've talked about sort of what's going in montreal or going on just outside of montreal and the military response um but fundamentally there's two pieces of legislation. Well, one's a piece of legislation, one's a treaty that underpin yeah. this whole uh, circumstance. So the first one is IRPA, also known as the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. And IRPA outlines a lot of the technical aspects in terms of Canadian law as to how asylum claims are to be made and sort of the authorities around the asylum and refugee claim process. The other one, which a lot more people Perhaps will be uh, will be familiar with is the Safe Third Country Agreement. Uh, The Safe Third Country Agreement effectively says that it's an agreement with the United States, and it says that if an asylum claim comes from an individual who's previously been in one country or the other, they cannot then make an asylum claim in uh, the neighboring country. For instance, a individual, uh, let's give them a let's let's use Haiti as an example. So a Haitian coming to the United States and then making it to the Canadian border cannot declare themselves at a port of entry, which is sort of your standard border crossing, and uh, try and make an asylum claim, they would then be referred back to the United States to say, you've already been in a, your a second country, you've been in a safe country, you must return there and make your claim there. The problem uh, and sort of how the safe third country agreement fits into this is it includes a quote-unquote loophole um, which effectively states that it only applies at ports of entry, which means that if you do not present yourself at a port of entry and you go through the woods, then the Safe Third Country Agreement doesn't apply, which is now proving problematic yes. because you're having individuals from the United States who are asylum seekers to the United States uh, decide that they don't want to declare their asylum in the United States anymore. So they're making their way to Canada and they're using sort of the back channel way to do it rather than through a port of entry. So obviously it's a little more time consuming. It's a little more demanding of them. um, But it also creates problems in terms of uh, backlogging and and sort of circumventing the system as it's been yeah. used so traditionally. Would you call it a sort of backdoor port of
0: entry loophole? <laughs> you
1: you <laughs> can you can use all of those words.
0: I, that's what I'm calling the episode now, by the way.
1: <laughs> so so what you have? So let, let's talk about the Haitian uh, situation specifically. Um, in terms of Canadian, so I, I believe it's defined under IRPA there's two different designations that countries are able to get if they're deemed unsafe. One's called an ADR, uh, Administrative Deferral of Removals, and the other is a TSR, a Temporary Suspension of Removals. So the difference between an ADR and a TSR is not like super obvious. It's effectively that an ADR, an administrative deferral of removals, is put in place for a shorter time than a TSR. And so Haiti was under a TSR both post earthquake that's to say if a Haitian flew to Canada and they presented themselves at the border uh, be that an airport or the Canadian American border the government would say we will uh, review your asylum claim but even if you are found to not be admissible into Canada that your asylum claim is not founded we won't deport you back to Haiti because your country is unsafe and so Haiti was under a Uh, T.S.R.? T.S.R. for about 14 years post-earthquake.
0: Wait, 14? Or, sorry, four. four, Okay, I was going to say. Sorry, hasn't been 14 years since. Was was
1: was, was not in 2000, (laughs) but rather uh, 2010. And so there was four years in which uh, anyone who was Haitian could come to Canada and their asylum claim would be considered, and if they were granted permanent residency, they could stay. But if they were deemed inadmissible they could still stay for a couple years for a couple of years until their country was declared safe and they could still work during that time so i think it's important to acknowledge because we'll, we'll see a little bit later in the government's response but as soon as your process as an asylum claimant often this well this used to take about a week you'd be able to work now this process is taking much, much more than weeks, right? Like many, many weeks, and months.
0: then it's a bit of a problem because you can't work, and then. So
1: yeah. one of one of the changes that Trudeau announced in his recent presser that we'll we'll cover a little bit more later, is that uh, they would fast track the work process. That perhaps we can't give you the proper interview that you previously needed to do this, but we're going to say you can effectively work starting today, okay? Because we don't want the back the administrative backlog to ruin your quality of life, yeah um, for basically no reason as you're going to be able to work once you sit down with someone for an hour. Yeah. Um, so the ADR and the TSR are sort of humanitarian measures. Let's go over some of the countries that are covered here. Uh, so ADRs include uh, today include Somalia, the Gaza Strip, Syria, Mali, Central African Republic, South Sudan, Libya, Yemen, and Burundi. So obviously not the happiest countries on Earth.
0: No, I was going to say it's actually like the least happy countries on Earth. Yeah, it's a, it's know, a who's who yeah.
1: of... Uh, Places that are not doing too hot. Perhaps the worst place. And this was one-upped perhaps only by the TSR or... Well, it's, it's around the same with the TSR, which now includes Afghanistan, uh, the uh, Congo, and Iraq. Democratic Republic of Congo. Of course. I, I, I reckon that the so-called Democratic Republic of Congo. Indeed. Um, so these are two designations that aren't often discussed in the context of what is going on.
0: Yeah, I know, but can I ask you something? I noticed there, there's no overlap between these two lists. So is one of them like automatically applied to the other?
1: So the difference between them—they both have the same effect. Okay. Which is to say that if you're on if your country is under an ADR or TSR, you're granted special right. privileges. But it's just
0: that one is like a longer period than the other? One's
1: a longer period. Okay. One one can be slapped on and removed quicker is, okay. is sort of how they're used. Gotcha. And so one you can respond to a humanitarian crisis, say like, oh, there was a tornado. Get out of there. And the other sort of for a long-term civil war okay. Uh, okay. circumstances. So the United States actually has a parallel process to this. Um, they I, I don't know the names for the American, uh, the American comparable situation off the top of my head. But post-Haitian earthquake, they also... Uh, made a special exemption similar to an ADR or TSR for Haiti. Okay. And so one of the reasons you're seeing uh, Haitians specifically being the ones coming to Canada, especially in the summer period now, is that the Trump administration has declared their intent to remove or repeal the equivalent of the TSR for Haiti. What's interesting about this is that Canada has already done this. Um, We initially declared our intent to repeal the uh, Haitian TSR, I believe, in 2014, December 2014, and that includes a six-month window for people to sort of get their lives together to prepare for it, which obviously, it's not a happy process, but it's a necessary process, and i will prompt me in a few minutes to tell you why it's necessary. Um, But then the liberal government, when they came to power, they expanded this. And in uh, February 2016, they put a six-month extension to apply for permanent residency if you were granted grant on humanitarian and compassionate grounds. And to the best of my knowledge now, this is in effect. The people who came to Canada under their TSR, if they were not granted asylum, have been removed. They've been deported. Yeah, already. Already. Yeah. And so this is what's happening in the United States now, is the same process. But these individuals who have not been granted asylum on humanitarian and compassionate grounds are now coming to Canada to try and make a claim on our system and the safe third country agreement that is supposed to prevent the duplication of claims on the American and Canadian systems is not being effective or is being circumvented because they're not going through they're not going to a they port are of entry
0: exploiting, you could say the backdoor port of entry loophole correct <laughs> there you go <laughs> Which is what, yeah, like I said, is what that, that is the name now officially for this phenomenon.
1: Very good. I'll, I'll, I'll let you slide on that one. So it presents a challenging situation because obviously passions are high with anything related to refugees. And I think we've seen all the different parties take very different stances on the safe third country agreement. Um, actually, before I get into the party stances, let me mention why the safe third country agreement is important. The United States has backlogs in their asylum and refugee process of going through their courts and their claim system of hundreds of thousands of people. And so if you allow individuals to come to Canada and make a claim or to jurisdiction shop, this is often what you'll hear conservatives or even immigration experts refer to, to pick a jurisdiction in which they have the best odds, that's problematic for Canada because the United States... Having a population of 300 million people will accept more generally and historically will accept higher numbers of refugees and asylum seekers. And so, if, let, let me give you sort of a hypothetical. If uh, the United States says, okay, we're going to accept, obviously, this is optimistic, but uh, give them 10 times the population that we do. So, 10 times our asylum claim levels on any given year. Sure. So they come and yet the United States has lower rates of acceptance, slightly lower rates of acceptance. Yeah. So if you have more people from the United States system leaking into the Canadian system because we have higher acceptance rates, then we're effectively like our system can be blown out very, very easily because of the disparity in numbers and sure. populations like and the, resources. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you have a backlog already in the United States of, say, 200,000 people, what happens when the door becomes open to Canada and says, you can actually go apply in Canada, it'll guarantee you, you know, a three-year wait period where you can work, and you have better odds of succeeding than in the United States. So this is roughly the circumstances that we're trying to deal with now, and it's what's problematic because if Canada becomes known, Uh, particularly in the United States, as an easy jurisdiction to walk into and have better odds, then we run the risk of getting a lot of asylum seekers and claimants from the United States into Canada. Okay. And we're already beginning to see that. But
0: these claims are going through the U.S. system
1: already. And are already in the United States system. Okay. So what the Safe Third Country Agreement, the, the intent of the Safe Third Country Agreement was to say a claim in the American system is as valid as a claim in the Canadian system. We see these as parallels and so there's no reason yeah. to shop between the two. But of if them. there's
0: an enormous backlog, then
1: you get a problem because they're in function not equivalent. They're in function not equivalent. Perhaps a backlog works in the claimant's favor because if they're declared inadmissible, that gives them a more, lot of time. A yeah. lot of time. More so, time yeah, there. Yeah, because
0: they, they don't, they're not like kicked out in the interim, so like they stay there and then like can work and stuff. It's just that it takes a long time for the actual administrative process to get settled. Correct. Okay.
1: But in practice Canada because it depends on the judges or the adjudicators of the cases. In practice, although our, you know, the wording of our claims systems may be very similar, in practice Canada historically has been more lenient in who we accept and has had higher acceptance rates of sim- similar populations than the United States has. And so if you're a Haitian in the United States and your claim is perhaps on edge and you're not confident then why not take the 10% extra chance in Canada that your claim is going to be accepted and perhaps not only that but stretch out your stay in North America by a couple of years. Yeah. Or on the North American continent at least. By, By a couple of years because you're now restarting a claim in a new jurisdiction. Right. So that's why this is problematic, and that's why the Safe Third Country Agreement now is under a lot of scrutiny and deserves some, some review, at least, by yeah. all parties involved. So one of the interesting uh, stories from about a year ago um, was that Jason Kenney, whilst uh, immigration minister, uh, apparently asked the Americans to review, to re-enter into negotiations on Safe Third Country, Uh, Twice and the Americans declined. That they basically saw it in their benefit because people were leaving their jurisdiction by it and not entering. We don't have anyone in Canada transiting out of Canada and making asylum claims in in the United United States from Canada because it's perceived as a stricter jurisdiction. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. So we've had three basic responses from the political parties. The Conservative Party, I'll, I'll start. I'll start at home. Um, has uh, in the past six or so months basically talked about tightening or closing the loophole in the safe third country. Um, as just mentioned in the Jason Kenney anecdote, Americans have not been super keen to close the loophole in the safe third country because it kind
0: of sort of gives them like a, a safety valve. Yes about like
1: there's no there's no harm for them yeah. in, in allowing it to proceed um, but recently the conservative line uh, under new leadership under shear has moved to put uh, country of origin designation flags on uh, refugees <laughs> or asylum seekers no that, that is incorrect <laughs> fake news um, it has in fact been to close the loophole by declaring everywhere a port of entry I see. The uh, browser's
0: approach to
1: immigration. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: carry on, carry on. Um, so, in, li- in light of that, I, I would point you to uh, section 26 of the IRPA regulations, so not the act itself, of the regs, uh, states that a minister may, on the base of the following factors, designate uh, place, a port of entry as... Well as the port of entry's hours and operations. And so here's the four criteria effectively for when a minister can declare an area a port of entry. Um A is the frequency or anticipated frequency of people arriving from abroad. Okay. So I mean if your backwoods sure. you know trail has a lot of people, that then seems like to hit the criteria. Boom! Port of entry. Um B is the need for department services in that area. Also pretty easy to apply. Uh, the operational requirements of commercial transporters less applicable, but sure. you'll you only need to hit one of these. you don't need to hit all of them. Um, and the administrative arrangements or other departments or agencies of the government of Canada. Um so effectively, you could make a pretty coherent argument that on the basis of the Urpa regs that you know this backwoods in Quebec and or other places could constitute sure. um, a port of entry. It seems like that's what they've set up more or less. It's sort of a de facto port of entry. The minister hasn't declared it a port of entry, um, but he could. He could. Um, You could, and and so this is what's interesting about this solution, is that the Safe Third Country Agreement is very specific about um, where you can declare and whether or not it's at a port of entry. But the agreement does not define ports of entry. The, The problem with... Or The problem or sort of the catch-22 of these international agreements is that they don't necessarily fix the language that they are using to define. Okay. Because they don't include definitions, and if they did, every time uh, the home government or one of the two states wanted to change their own definitions internally, it would impact a whole host of international agreements, which would have to be re well, this is or whole am-
0: fun with, like, stuff that contravenes trade agreements.
1: Or amended yeah. or all these other things. Yeah. And so the government of Canada, people talk about, like, oh, we can't renegotiate the Safe Third Country Agreement. We don't need to. We can change the regs internally. Yeah. Which would de facto change the agreement. It's a backdoor amendment to the agreement that, as a reg change, is in the power of the minister by a stroke of the pen effectively. Um, so it would be very easy to do. Um, What would the consequences of this be? It would be to close the loophole in the Safe Third Country Agreement. I think there'd be some departmental wrangling uh, to see where else, what other services are promised at a port of entry. Um, Perhaps one step back from this, an idea that I'm fond of, uh, would be giving uh, border security officers the option to declare a port of entry as, as they see fit. Yeah. So devolving that power to border service officers or CBSA officers in the region, it's kind of
0: like how priests can like consecrate things. Yeah, sort Is of, sort will? of similar things, yeah. or how
1: uh, Princess, what's her name from the Netherlands, oh, yeah, was yeah, yeah, yeah. The born uh, was born on temporary Dutch territory yeah. in uh, I yeah, the Elgin yeah, Hotel, Ottawa. a yeah. block and a half from here. Yeah. Um. So that she was in fact born on Dutch land. Indeed. Um. So sort of that solution to things. Uh, let's go over to the NDP response. The NDP response, um, particularly during the winter, I think they've been a little more quiet on it now, has been to um, scrap the Safe Third Country Agreement, saying that... That is,
0: in fact, what... Um, I, I am actually not sure what the official party position is right now, because, like, as everyone... who listens state to of flux. Regularly knows, A, it's in a state of flux. B... Uh, Like no one wants to take very hard positions on things right now for the obvious reason that there is a leadership race going on. And C, I haven't been following anything except for the leadership race because I'm actively working on it, so it's kind of been all a blur. Um, But yeah, so you you tell me what the NDP's position
1: is. (laughs) So I I haven't heard much, uh, I haven't seen much of them in stories recently, but at least during the winter um, when you were having slightly different circumstances but this similar thing happening. Um, they were scrap safe third country on the basis of humanitarian and compassionate yes, grounds. I recall that, um, which personally think is a bad idea. And then you have the liberal response, and let's walk through that. So, let's begin with Trudeau's tweet. the The infamous tweet that got some one million odd retweets was the subtweet to Donald Trump uh, when he tried to do his uh, ban, his Muslim countries ban, or whatever it is. And uh, Trudeau said, like, everyone is welcome here, all refugees welcome. And a lot of media and a lot of people are pointing to this as As, sort of...
0: Yes, this is the classic Trudeau thing.
1: As sort of the instigating factor for all of this uh, rush to the border. Gee,
0: who could have foreseen (laughs) that the prime minister's public statements would be taken seriously? (laughs) Would be taken seriously and does not at all conform actually with, with the government policy. I mean, once again, who could have foreseen that Justin Trudeau's actions would not live up to his words? No,
1: not everyone is welcome here. People who apply for asylum or refugee status through very strict parameters and grounds are in yeah. fact welcome here and yes. go through and go through the process. And so now the government's been trying to walk it back. Um, Trudeau had a presser in which he tried to clarify um, sort of his position on this, and that not in fact everyone was welcome here. Yes. Uh, that, that's not how he went about it. What he instead said was, those who come through these routes get no benefit, sort of trying to walk back that narrative that there's something to be gained by coming through yes. the woods. But frankly, that's not very compelling. Well, you know what,
0: though? There is something to be gained from him coming through the woods. joy of the outdoors, Jen. <laughs>
1: Have you ever been to northern Maine? It's beautiful. I, I believe you. I believe... Well, uh, yeah, I've been to northern Quebec. Very uh, foothills of the Appalachians. Very nice region. That's actually southern Quebec. What did I say? Northern Quebec? You did say northern so Quebec. There <laughs> it's is, the opposite of There that. is no American border in northern Quebec. <laughs> no,
0: yeah, it's tough. It's tough out there. You know, gee, though, the American borders? so oh, that's tough.
1: <laughs> so the... Uh, and, like, this is pretty transparent. Um, the, the follow-up to this has been uh, sending Emmanuel Borg who is a Haitian uh, his, uh, his background yeah, is, he's, he's is Haitian ancient, yeah. um, he's a Montreal MP uh, has been to send him to Florida to speak to the Haitian community there and yes. be like time to dispel some misgang gang yeah. please don't come to Canada um, this is bad how how effective this approach is going to be I don't I don't particularly like I think you need something more like concrete than a public relations like a wall perhaps <laughs> <laughs> something more concrete than a public perhaps relations something approach more to built it of cement. <laughs> <laughs> um so like this has been so this has been weighing on the government pretty heavily i i think uh, particularly because of how they started their mandate on the Syrian refugee issues and how contentious immigration issues often are if a country's not perceived to have strong borders i think a lot of other things start start to crumble a lot of love confidence in the state a lot of belief in sort of your taxes are going where they should I, I think it's pretty instrumental to the conception of a state and the conception of government uh perhaps the first thing is strong borders and that's perhaps why it's been such a uh such a politically hot topic in the United States not only under Trump but historically and Canada rarely has to deal with this and when we do, I think we have shown to have a very low tolerance for yeah. border in, issues. In a sense,
0: we have one land border with the United States. Yes. Or I guess two land borders with the United States, if you count the sort of, like, long Alaska stretch. Um, and typically, we that just isn't much of an issue, because you don't get a lot of people crossing illegally from one to the other, or crossing really, like, in any sort of furtive way.
1: Correct. And historically, we've had some, you know, insta- instances where... Some of the things have been occurring via boat. Um, I, I remember growing up and uh, asylum seekers from Asia uh, coming over in cargo ships was one of my earliest political memories. Um, but historically, Canada has very low tolerance in terms of border issues and in terms of seeing border issues mismanaged.
0: Well, do you, okay, okay, I see. Okay.
1: And so there's a lot of pressure on the government, I think, to resolve this situation and to do something. And in my opinion, um, going and now doing a backup PR, sending an MP to talk to leaders of the Haitian community, I don't think is going to be a very effective uh, effective approach, especially if his words are undercut by the telephone calls that members of the community are making back from Canada, saying, like, it worked fine, and I'm here. I'm, I'm in queue to get my asylum claim vetted. Yeah,
0: I, I honestly, like... I can't say I have terribly strong opinions on on this, just because I'm not terribly well-informed about border issues, because I don't care that much about them. So I don't know how much I have to add
1: here. That's fair, that's fair. I
0: sort of default to a compassionate position by default, and I think that people should have the right to, you know, I I understand the the human yearning to seek a better life for yourself and your children. yeah, no, that's pretty as, much it. As um, we all do. As but we all
1: do, indeed. That's why that, I, I did say human. That has to be balanced with pragmatic approaches to border policy. Um, the last note I want to close on uh, before wrapping up, you know, nearly thirty minutes on the Safe Third Country Agreement that Hey, that's the you know, that's the, that's what the people wanted. <laughs> that <laughs> probably very few listeners wanted. Um, was to talk about its history in terms of the courts. Ooh. Um, ooh, ooh, even the two most interesting topics. <laughs> <laughs> so the Safe Third Country Agreement has been challenged uh, by sort of um, civil, civil society groups in the past on the basis that the American system is not as compassionate as the Canadian system, and therefore it's in contravention of our rights under international treaties. Um, so it's gone as high as the, uh, the federal court in a case termed Canada v. Canada, the Council of Refugees. And this was in 2008. Uh, In the case, the plaintiff sought to declare various sections of IRPA and the Safe Third Country Agreement invalid. Uh, The grounds for the challenge was that the United States could not be designated as a safe third country in compliance with the 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees and the Convention Against Torture or other cruel, humane, degrading punishment. Uh, And so it was basically trying to argue that uh, if the United States is... uh, in dereliction of its duty to refugees, Canada yes. would be also Yeah. And if, this is if it made an yeah. agreement with the United States to see them as equals. And this
0: this was, I think, at the heart of the NDP's problem with the safety country agreement at the instance of the, the Muslim ban
1: last fall, winter. But so there's a problem with that, and I'll I'll touch on that. The courts declared at the time that Uh, it was in good faith and that as long as the U.S. was complying uh, with the conventions, they were within their authorities. So the the federal court basically said, you know, the United States is fine. Um, We disagree that it is in dereliction of its duty under the international treaties and therefore things can go forward. Sure. Um, This was attempted to move to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court quashed it and said we won't hear the case. Okay. So where that position sort of falls apart if you actually look at what the Trump administration has done uh, with regards to asylum seekers, it's actually next to nothing. I mean, th- um, this is something you hear so
0: much, too, with just, like, turns out, actually, that on immigration, the Trump administration is not very different at all from the Obama administration, which I don't think speaks very highly to like
1: Obama's uh, progressive credentials, but there you go. Well, the ban I've... I don't even know the latest status of the ban of the eight countries. I think that's done, I think. I, I honestly have no idea. Was it was, one it damn was challenged thing. in court and then it was partially enacted.
0: Yeah, it, it's, you know, I, I don't know the old joke about history is that's one damn thing after another.
1: But in the last year or so. But the main point to take away is that although these things both involve foreign countries, they don't overlap. There is, the Venn diagram here is completely apart. Yeah, it's more a set of glasses. Asylum claims weren't impacted really by, or existing asylum claims particularly, were not impacted by the ban. The ban would, in theory, make it harder for individuals from that country to get to the United States and claim asylum. Yes, because it was on travel. But that would not impact it, nor would it impact the sort of institutional Capacities of the United States to declare asylum seekers, um, asylum seekers permanent residents, or to accept their claims based on humanitarian, passionate grounds, risk their life—all these other things—that effectively hasn't changed in the United States. I haven't seen any mention of the asylum claim process in the United States. It's often about immigration. It's yeah. often about uh, Mexican immigration. Even people with uh, permanent
0: residency there for a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's never been about asylum so a lot of people like to conflate these two not not to say that you know Trump is doing great on asylum issues he may appoint judges who are very very harsh on asylum but even on asylum claims and in adjudicating asylum claims but I'm not even sure that has happened to my knowledge uh, at least not yet and perhaps even if that were to happen I think the Canadian courts would still see some some flexibility in how harsh the United States is allowed to be in interpreting 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 their rights and responsibilities under these international treaties. Yeah. Because to say like oh your asylum claim acceptance dropped 5%, I don't think would be something the Canadian courts would be like that's clearly like That is yeah. clearly a dramatic change. Any any decrease is. Yeah. Well, I think ultimately that is a political decision.
0: Um right, like I think yeah. We, can can do a lot, but not everything. Um, but that that's fair. Anything else you wanted to add on on the subject of, of this uh, this topic?
1: No, that's sort of where I come away from it, yep. and I hope that uh, it has been presented in a relatively coherent manner. I think so. I mean, we, we the thing the, the secret to this show is that we both
0: uh, steadily enjoy a beverage or, or two <laughs> as as we record, and we have yeah. a Dominion City a local brewery in, in Ottawa's lovely a Sun Split IPA, a East Coast uh, I mean, side. We should get a royalty for this. Um, not yeah really It's so if,
1: revenue, but um, yeah, it's a lovely uh, citra hopped uh, IPA. Yeah, it's a Vermont style, also known as a New England IPA, which is yeah. known for having very okay. fruity hops. Hops are... What's in beer that uh, often IPAs that makes it very bitter? Yes, and I grew up on the
0: West Coast, so for me, a uh, Pine Sol IPA <laughs> is sort of more my experience, but uh, yeah, no, these are quite good. I gotta say. Yeah,
1: New England IPAs so, are very, uh, very fruity, a lot of uh, like pineapple, mango flavors to them. Dominion City, are quite call delicious. Us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd be happy to, to
0: sort of get beers for you guys in exchange for talking about them. We should just start a beer podcast, really.
1: Fun fact, they were uh, they were founded by former Hillstaffers slash lobbyists. That is true, right. Um, is there any other issues this week? Uh, perhaps the cabinet shuffle that you'd like to repent Oh, uh, you
0: know, the cabinet shuffle that won't happen. Uh, and, and
1: confess that okay. last week you were completely wrong and you went on the record to... So every
0: of- time I make a prediction on this show, I'm always like I really shouldn't make predictions because, like, you know, Fate has a way of making fools of us all. They're always wrong. Um, but Judy Foote uh, decided to retire, which is fair. Or resign. More retire, she, oh, I think she is retiring. yeah. You know. um, but she's had a rough family situation, I believe. I, I don't know the specifics of it, but yeah. she's resigning her post uh, as a minister and I think as an MP as well. Um, Correct. Yeah, and uh, that will obviously require someone new to take over the much-coveted uh, public services and procurement process uh, Portfolio, uh, responsible for such gems as the Phoenix Pay system.
1: And military procurement. And military procurement. The which two is heating up.
0: The two best files uh, that are great and the government never screws up on. Uh, the speculation seems to be that it, the, the post will go to our old friend who we mentioned on the first full episode of the show, uh, Seamus O'Regan, um, who is a former... News broadcaster, I think news broadcaster might be generous because he was
1: the weather guy. The weather guy on like Canada AM or something like this. Yes, on
0: uh, Newfoundland television or radio. I don't really know anything about Newfoundland. Sorry, Newfoundland. Send us a Newfoundlander sometime to talk to. It'd be a great episode. <laughs> um, and also a close personal friend of Justin Trudeau because as, as we mentioned in the context of the last time we talked about him, he was one of the people on Billionaire Island with, with Justin. And uh, as we pointed out at that time... Uh, either he was in violation of the Conflict of Interest Code, or Justin Trudeau is in, conf- right. yeah, in violation of the Conflict of Interest Act. Uh, and you can go back to episode one, the second episode, uh, to hear more about that. <laughs> um, it's quite good. Uh, I have yet to dig into the Conflict of Interest Commissioner's yearly report, but actually, we should uh, we should talk about that sometime. I have it sitting on my desk. And, sure um, enough. Yeah, that'd be good. So, yeah, that, that could be interesting, and uh, Etienne seems to think that there will be a, a sort of accompanying mini-shuffle. Um, I obviously predicted that there would be no cabinet shuffle this
1: So if they, if they appoint Seamus, the gender parody is blown. It, it is blown, indeed. Um, and so if they appoint Seamus, there's also Bartis Jagger, who, as I mentioned previously, is doing double duty. And then there's also in media been speculation of uh, associate minister of indigenous affairs. Okay. Yeah. Being appointed well, as well. I've
0: heard also Carolyn Bennett might be on her way out.
1: I I have not heard anything towards it, that it. end, um, but obviously this is beginning to look more like a shuffle than a one in one out. Indeed. One in one out it uh, does, situation. It does kind of seem that way. Um. So I'm just gonna load on that one mostly. Is
0: it really a shuffle if you're just adding people?
1: Uh hmm. If okay, well,
0: let's let's take a, pa- a deck of cards. Here, here's the deal. And you no, add no, no, no. More no, no. Cards I'm to I'm not gonna argue that. Are you shuffling it?
1: I'm not. Okay, so I'm not gonna argue if they just add. If they just add, I will concede the point. Okay. If they move one or more cabinet ministers to other portfolios to a different portfolio, then not I would not concede? simply remove, then I would concede that that is in fact a shuffle. Then I will take the cake.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough so i guess we'll have to rely on on fickle fate for that one
1: uh, justin trudeau please uh please I, prove me right either way um it should be early september yes um that we can look forward to this or in a week or two or
0: they could do it after september 22nd which is the first day of fall what? and i would
1: not be technically wrong that would be the stupidest time imaginable to shuffle a cabinet but it would make me correct Okay, so we're into the new parliamentary <laughs> session, so and, uh, new Parliament, yeah, and here everyone's we go. been briefed up on their latest issues, and uh, oh, surprise musical chairs. New you jobs, all, everyone. New you jobs. all move over one portfolio, and uh, you're now behind the gun for Question Period tomorrow. So that'll be fun.
0: Also, you know, I've ranted about Question Period a lot in the past, and I, I, I shared this with the town the other day, but I was, I was looking through... Um, alan blakeney's book political management in canada which is fantastic he who's was a, alan
1: blakeney he's the
0: former premier of saskatchewan in the 70s and also a health minister for tommy douglas and uh general all-around good guy was um, he in charge of the eugenics program was it he was not tommy douglas yeah everyone says that tommy douglas wrote his like doctoral thesis partially on eugenics and then realized it was a terrible idea and never implemented any of those ideas while he was in power
1: Apparently, him realizing it is a terrible idea is attributed to him visiting Nazi Germany in 1936. I'm sure that had something to do with it. I mean, that would probably impact a lot of people's assessment of a lot of things. I literally learned that fact today based on the conversation about political correctness. That is a wash w- across w- our w- fair country, which Etienne
0: w- w- thinks has gone too far. <laughs> um, we opinions differ, um, but yeah. At any rate, uh, he wrote that uh, the. The system in ottawa of doing question period where you know you sort of have everybody on notice all the time for everything is patently ridiculous and a huge waste of everyone involved's time uh which i'm inclined to agree with we should actually uh, talk about his book sometime that'd be a fun uh, fun series of episodes it's good though it's very good if you guys are ever looking for a uh, manual on how to run a small to medium-sized province i'd highly recommend his book
1: (laughs) if you ever find yourself in that position it's good folks uh feel free to come on for an interview as well also while you're at it that would be good so i think that that'll do it for us today
0: our our emergency broadcast uh, which will probably get put up like in several days because i'm actually going on vacation tomorrow uh working vacation but vacation nonetheless
1: um, one shout out here to uh, Looney Politics, our uh, our ever gracious hosts, um, who host us online. You should check out their website, um, a source of Canadian content, and they pay journalists. Also, so a, always worth checking out. A shout out to uh,
0: the Singaporean sovereign wealth fund Temasek Holdings Incorporated, who uh, <laughs> now partially own us for their uh, bailout of SoundCloud. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, oh, that you.
1: that's what you're on about. Yeah. Laurent was having uh, fitful sleep, wondering whether or not SoundCloud would uh, would stay afloat, and they are afloat for another six months. So, so that we'll saves us from doing a lot to of be administrative honest, work. If I were Singaporean, I would have been a little.
0: I don't know about this investment. You know, it seems a little risky. That they don't seem to really manage. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, that that's all for today, folks. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes and all that jazz. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Your Pants Pod. Uh, And enjoy the rest of your lovely, although cold and rainy summer.
1: Yeah, we'll see you in September.